Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Definitely feel that song. That's got some angst to it, as does this passage. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word this morning in Lent? uh, We stand, we read together as we do in other seasons. We respond regardless of the passage with this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, And wait till you feel this one. If you thought last week's was bad. This week's. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Himon to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So be aware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the valley will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of Ben-Himmon, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will be food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem for the land will become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and the prophets, the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all of the stars of the heavens which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshiped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10. uh, From the least to the greatest, all are guilty, uh, greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will be among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Why are we sitting here? Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against him. We hoped for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing, but there is only terror. The snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan. At the neighing of their stallions, the whole land trembles. They have come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all who live there. See, I will send venomous snakes amongst you, vipers that cannot be charmed, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. You who are my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. 
Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is a king no longer there? Why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless idols? The harvest is past. The summer has ended and we are not saved. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may sit down. Ouch! Um, what do you do with that? We should pray first, uh, and then we'll get to it. Jesus, uh, would you speak through this text that we've wrestled with? Um, would you speak to us? Take what is yours and um, get it stuck in our hearts. Bring transformation. Help us to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Oh man, this is a passage that you can feel the angst, right? If you're visiting, my name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. You're joining us in this season that is known as Lent, a season that brings us beautifully up to the moments of uh, crucifixion, of resurrection. We head to Resurrection Sunday just three weeks from now. We have flyers all over the place, invite people. Statistically, Easter is the time that people who don't do church are willing to try church. Uh, and we believe that the message of Jesus is for everybody. This is a question that we're kind of using to propel us to Easter. When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, how will I be different? What am I preparing for? Lent is a journey that leads to Easter and we enter into different practices in order to get us there well. So you've heard me say multiple times, when you hear Lent, think fast, lament, and repent. And the word that we'll land very clearly on today is this idea of lament. If you uh, have any questions, feel free to send them in. We talk about them in our midweek podcast. Aaron and I will go over them. We've had quite a lot of questions recently. This week we had none, and I took that to mean I perfectly explained every element of the sermon last week, and now you're all wonderfully generous people, and money is flooding into charities and things of need all over the place. Uh, and so... That's what I'm going to assume this week if you don't uh, ask some questions. Jeremiah gives us this kind of like the broad stretches of his book. What, what is going on here in chapter one? The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I point you over nations and kingdoms to uproot, to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. We're expecting change to happen in the midst of this book. Historically, this is a time where kingdoms are moving around. Some are rising, some are falling. So there's all this historical context that's in play. Broadly, there's these kind of couple of things that we've, we've looked at so far. In chapters one through four of this huge 52-chapter book, the longest in the Bible, we are a weird community of faith that would do that to ourselves during Lent. Or really, I did it, so you guys are not to blame. Chapters one through four, the relationship is broken. The relationship between God and his people, Israel, his people, Judah, has become fractured. In chapters five through seven, it's actually more than that. Society is broken. 
everything's going wrong. It's getting messy out there. And now he turns this corner to this idea of lament. It's this section of the book known as the Lamentations of Jeremiah. I first came across this name for it in my favorite TV show, The Simpsons. The pastor on a cold day where everything's frozen warms the people's hearts with the Lamentations of Jeremiah, the long version. And so that's what I wanted to do for you. But this, this word lament is one that I'm not comfortable with. Last week, I confessed, like we talked about generosity. By nature, I'm not a generous person, especially when it comes to finances. I like to hold on to stuff. Second confession, I'm also not good at lament. And so as I was preparing for this, I was like, Jesus, could we please soon speak about stuff I know something about that I'm actually good at? And next week, well, we get repentance, which I've had to do a lot of. So hopefully that starts to land me more in my sweet spot. Jeremiah, Kathleen O'Connor says, opens the sluice gates of grief in this section. He's predicted disaster, and now disaster is coming. Historically, this whole area that we now call the Middle East will change. Everything that you see that's kind of that orange color is the the Chaldean or the Babylonian empire. It takes off from Babylon and spreads all over Syria. And if you want to know where Judah is, the place we're talking about, it's like the size of my fingernail. It's right there. Tiny little place that will become just engulfed by the mess of what's going on historically. Tiny nation that it seems is really important to God, but will become lost in the midst of this new empire. This is what Jeremiah is talking about right now. This is the fate that awaits this people for all of the things that we've read in the first seven chapters. And in chapter eight, he says this. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of heaven, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshiped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. We often look back at the Old Testament and read very Christian themes into it. But for the most part, there's very limited ideas of an afterlife within the Old Testament narratives. You get these moments of sparks, like in Psalms, David will talk about being in the house of the Lord forever. But, but for the most part, the best that was wished for was to rest peacefully with your ancestors. That's why in the historical books we read over and over again, he died and lay peacefully with his fathers, if he was good, and and sometimes something different if he was bad. So to be left with your bones out to the heavens was the worst that could happen to you after death. This was the opposite of the good life. And then, verse three, wherever I banish them, those that survive, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. Things are getting bad in Jerusalem in this season. The Babylonians are on the doorstep, have maybe even conquered the city. Everything is looking down. And so in the midst of that, Jeremiah brings this message, what would be called in Hebrew a massa. It's like a a burden. The best way I can explain it to you, uh, how a prophet would feel is, you know that feeling where you eat something that was bad for you? and something starts churning in your stomach, and you're like, there's only one result to this. It can't stay in my digestive system. It's got to come out somewhere. And you just hope that it comes out somewhere privately in this scenario. But here, it was like a foretelling, telling something that came out from within them. And this is what Jeremiah tells them. 
Verse 10 of chapter eight, from the least to the greatest, all are needy, are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. They dress the wound of my people. There is a conversation happening in society. Everybody seems to agree something is wrong. There is a problem. The conversation is now, well, how bad is it? For those of you who can remember back to 2007 when the housing crisis starts to unpack, what's the conversation that's taking place? How bad is it? When we had a couple of banks fail just in the last couple of weeks, for those of you who keep up on that kind of news, what's the conversation you hear? Well, how bad is it? Is it going to be like before? Same conversation, just different situations. The conversation in Jerusalem is, is how bad is it? There is a wound, how serious is it? Jeremiah says it's terrible. Everyone else says, huh, we're not so sure. Maybe the best way to understand this is, is this. How many of you grew up in the 80s or before? Would say your 80s kids or before, okay? So we got a few like, few, few kids, a few 90s kids, got a few 2000s, got a few uh, onwards and so, so, so you know, right, parenting changed at a certain point. Things were different in the 80s. We did things like this to our kids. I realize this guy's got the same haircut as me, actually, so it's like maybe that's where it came from. 80s parenting. Just life was different. The way we experienced it was different. And so I found this delightful little picture of me and my brother um, just back in the 80s living life. And, and it was alongside a picture of my dad building the second half of our house, and I found a picture of us sliding down the scaffolding from the top of the roof to the, to the floor. Something that in 1988 was absolutely fine and government approved. Uh, today, social, social services, like today, there's a call made, like what's going on here? Back then, no problem whatsoever. That was just how we grew up. And it went along with other areas of life as well. You got an injury. How many of you were told at some point when you injured yourself, just rub some dirt on it? Go rub some dirt on it and it will be fine. Take some Vaseline, that will fix it as well. Like there's a couple of answers to everything. Dirt, Vaseline, they fix the world. Now there's Google, so people get injured and it's like, what's the problem with my kid? He needs his leg amputated. Quickly take him to the emergency room. It's a different world out there. And so there's different, different ways that we see like, to deal with physical wounds from the 80s uh, to now. This is the same conversation that's going on right here. There is a wound. People disagree on its severity. Is this a rubber dirt on it wound? Is this a rush to the ER wound? Jeremiah says it's serious. Everyone else says, don't worry. We're, we're, we're going to be fine. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. There won't be any war. Nobody's coming. Everything's going to be fine. God's on our side, all is good. Jeremiah sees a society that is wounded, a people that are wounded. He sees the inevitable result of all of that. And so what does he do in the face of it? Actually, he begins to lament. We're going to read these next few verses. Try and feel who's speaking here because it's definitely up for grabs. Some people would say this is all Jeremiah. Some people would say God is speaking at times here. Some people would say some of these verses are the city itself come to life and speaking. See if you can track with it. Verse 18, you who are my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. Is the Lord 
not in Zion? Is her king no longer there? Verse 20, why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer has ended. We are not saved. City, Jeremiah, God, who knows? Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Gilead was famous for medicines of all kinds. Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Is this Jeremiah? Is this God speaking? Does this longing for an ability to grieve two cry tears? Maybe you've had that experience of being lost in grief and you're like, I just wish I could cry, but it's actually too much right now. I can't, I can't find that relief. Somewhere there's this longing of Jeremiah or perhaps even God himself of, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. There is a wound and the only remedy for that wound that is presented is lament, is grief. In chapter nine, verse 10, he goes on to say, I will weep and wail for the mountains. Take up a lament concerning the wilderness grasslands. They are desolate and untraveled. The lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds have all fled. The animals are gone. There is a wounding and the remedy that's presented is lament. Now, while our situation is so different to what's presented here, I would suggest that often when you find yourself in a place of wounding, lament is the best step that you can take. When you find yourself in a place of grief, being able to lament is the best practice you can adopt. But there's a problem here. We're not good at it, as I said. Not just me, but actually probably you too. In the 19th sort of century, when you look back at the number of hymns, the percentage of them on lament was around 20 to 25%. When you look at the Psalms, about 45% of the Psalms are lament Psalms. Today, in the modern Christian charts, 5% at best. We don't understand lament. Lament has historically been a practice that has been left to the have-nots. White churches don't lament. Black churches lament. Hispanic churches lament. Because how do you lament when you have lots of resources? How do you lament when you have comfort and convenience, safety and security? You don't lament. Lament is for those that don't have enough. We are bad at lament and suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where grief grabs us out of nowhere. Some event takes place and we're left with no practice in place to be able to use any of the gift of lament. We get stuck. And so while not being good at it, I'm going to try and walk us through three words that hopefully help us to understand this idea, to give us something concrete to hold on to. The first word that I'll give you is the word lament. What is it? What does it mean? On the surface, lament is just simply an acknowledgement that something is not as it should be. St. Teresa of Avila, walking to the nunnery, famously slipped and fell off a path into a ditch, and she gave out this cry as she did it. If this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you don't have very many. 
no wonder you don't have very many. It's this honest confession to God of like, what is going on here? Why, why am I in a ditch? I'm on your side. I'm on the good team. Like, and here I am. It's this ability, this invitation to say things you might not learn in Sunday school to the God of the universe. On the surface, lament we may think of simply as grief or sorrow, but it's perhaps more broad than that. On the surface, I would suggest simply lament is protest. It's the word no. How many of you have heard the song United Breaks Guitars? It's written by a band who were on an airplane on their way to a gig, and while they were sat on the ground waiting to take off, they looked out and saw that somebody was throwing guitars around the tarmac before the plane took off. And so they decided, after getting no joy from the customer complaints department, to write a song about it. This is that song. So after getting no help from the customer service department, he wrote that song with the hope of getting a million views in a day. And of course, he did, and the word spread, and United had a customer service nightmare uh, on its hand. It is simply that sense of all is not as it should be. Th this is the most famous customer service letter ever written. It's to Richard Branson, the owner of Virgin, you know, great accent, interesting hair. Dear Richard, I love the Virgin brand, I really do, which is why I continue to use it despite a series of unfortunate incidents over the last few years. This latest incident takes the biscuit. Ironically, by the end of the flight, I would gladly have paid over $1,000 for a single biscuit following the culinary journey of hell I was subjected to at the hands of your corporation. I imagine the same questions are racing through your brilliant mind as we're racing through mine on that fateful day. What is this? Why have I been given it? What have I done to deserve this? And which one is the starter and which one is the dessert? You don't get into a position like yours, Richard, without anything less than a generous sprinkling of observational power. So I know you will have spotted the tomato next to the two yellow shafts of sponge on the left. Yes, it's next to the sponge shaft without the green paste. That's got to be a clue, hasn't it? No sane person would serve a dessert with tomato, would they? Well, let me answer you this, Richard, ask you this, Richard. What sort of animal would serve a dessert with peas in it? I know it looks like a bhaji, but it's in custard, Richard. Custard. It must be the pudding. Well, you'll be fascinated to hear that it wasn't custard. It was a sour gel with clear oil on the top. Its only redeeming feature was that it managed to be so alien to my palate that it took away the taste of curry emanating from our miscellaneous central cuboid of beige matter. Perhaps the meal on the left might be the dessert after all. Anyway, this is all irrelevant at the moment. I was strictly raised by neatly, by, neatly by my parents. If they knew I had started dessert before the main course, a sponge shaft would have been the least of my worries. So let's peel back the tin foil on the main dish and see what's on offer. I tried to explain how this felt. Imagine being a 12-year-old boy, Richard. Now imagine it's Christmas morning. You're sat with one final present to open. It's a big one, and you know what it is. It's that stereo you picked out from the catalog and wrote to Santa about. Only you open your present, and it's not there. It's your hamster, Richard. It's your hamster in a box, and it's not breathing. That's how I felt when I peeled back the foil and saw this. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's more of that bhaji custard. I admit, I thought the same too, but no. It's mustard, Richard. Mustard, more mustard than any man could consume in a month. On the left, we have a piece of broccoli and some peppers in a blue, brown glue-like oil, and on the right, the chef had prepared some mashed potato. The potato masher had obviously broken, so it decided the next thing to do would be to pass the potatoes through the digestive tract of a bird. 
Once it was regurgitated, it was clearly then blended and mixed with a bit of mustard. Everyone likes a bit of mustard, Richard. By now, I was actually starting to feel hypoglycemic. I, I needed a sugar hit. Luckily, a small cookie was provided. It caught my eye earlier due to its baffling presentation. It appears to be in an evidence bag from the scene of a crime. <laughs> a crime against bloody cooking. Either that or some sort of backstreet underground cookie purchased off a gun-toting maniac high on his own supply of yeast. You certainly wouldn't want to be caught carrying one of these through customs. Imagine biting into a piece of brass, Richard. That would be softer on the teeth than the specimen above. It's right, protest. It's this sense of all is not as it should be in the world. At its heartbeat, lament is simply a protest. Hey, there we go, is a protest. But perhaps something more, something that will unlock the word a touch more for us. Perhaps it's also this sense of disorientation, which may be the word where, or perhaps what, or when. This is Psalm 137, catch the notes of lament in this, written in the aftermath of Jeremiah's time as the people are taken to Babylon, the place where he predicted they would choose death over life. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. It's sorrow, right? Classic lament, but something else too. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Door to Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What is this doing in the Bible? Where is this from? It's both sorrow, right? And this deep, intense sense of anger, this isn't how things should be. But in the midst of it, the two collide. And I would suggest what's behind it all is this idea of disorientation. Where am I? What is going on here? This is a picture of Dio from Burundi. He's a man that came here during 1994, right in the midst where Burundi was quite literally on fire. And he talks about his experience of leaving in the airplane and looking down and seeing literally flames all over the place, smoke covering the skies. And he talks about fleeing to the airport and seeing the corpses of people on the street and then arriving first in Ireland and was so unaware of his surroundings that he thought Ireland was New York City and West Island looks very different to New York City and, and then arriving in New York at JFK and seeing people smiling or at least not terrified is how he phrased it. And he said, how can this be? Don't they know what's going on in the rest of the world? Don't they know that there's places where corpses lie on the street? Don't they know that there's places where dogs walk around with human remains in their mouths? Don't they know he couldn't understand where he was or why the world was different there. Lament is perhaps this sense of protest, but it's perhaps this sense of, where am I? It's perhaps this sense of disorientation. And then finally, maybe it's this. Maybe lament is also the cry 
of the soul in anguish. And the word there might be why. Might be why. And maybe you've sat there with some kind of why. Why is this the way life turned out? Why has this event happened? Why? 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 In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 26, we read, Put on sackcloth, my people. Roll in ashes. Mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. It's this place to process grief. I came across the band uh, that a student that I'd had briefly as a, a student in a camp that I ran, uh, he'd started this band some years ago and he wrote a song that's different from their usual angsty stuff. They have this really heavy sound and he wrote this song called 25 that he played for the first time the other day. It's a song of, pro, it's a song of process, not protest. A song where he's processing the loss of two friends in a car accident when he was 17 years old. At 25, he's now processing it, he said, for the first time and allowing the grief to hit him. And he wrote these words. I used to call your parents long after you disappeared and the guilt makes me forgetful and we haven't spoken in years because my childhood came to a sudden end the night I buried a couple of friends. I'll carry that with me until the day that I die because I was the last one to see you alive. But if we were invincible and forever wasn't a lie, you wouldn't be 17 six feet under. You'd have just turned 25. It's this song of loss, of grief, that you may have sat in at some point or another. In King Lear, Shakespeare's play, King Lear is faced with the death of his three children at the end and he carries in his youngest daughter, and we see the breakdown of human language. Even Shakespeare has no words for his loss. His words are simply howl, howl, howl. It's this guttural conclusion to the play that simply says there's nothing that we can say. There's no words that will fit. Simply it's grief, it's lament, it's loss. The writer Thomas Lynch wrote a book called The Undertaking. It is literally recollections of being an undertaker for many years. And he notes this, the meaning of life is connected inexorably to the meaning of death. That mourning is a romance in reverse. And if you love, you grieve, and there are no exceptions. Only those who do it well and those who don't. Lament is at its heart the cry of a human soul in anguish. And it's why we see it so much in poetry. The, po the philosopher Søren Kierkegaard said uh, that poets are so formed that when they cry out in anguish, they are so formed that they make beautiful sounds. And when we say to a poet or a songwriter, sing for us again, we're really saying, may new anguish, may new painful things come upon you so we can hear your voice sing. When you think about people like Bono in U2, he sings a song, Iris, about the death of his mother that he's processing 40 years after the event. And he notes in one of his autobiographies, really you're listening to a man at 53 crying for his mother, crying out of loss. That's what lament is, it's anguish of the soul. But second word, changes. Lament changes. 
Or grief is not the same. If you've grieved, you've known that it has undulations, it moves. We even see this in Jeremiah. We see the poet or perhaps God himself move from this sorrow and longing for recollection, longing for healing to something different altogether. In Jeremiah 9 verse 2, he says, Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. He fluctuates between sadness and anger, as we might expect. Grief often fluctuates between the two as well. You have that sense of anger that's coupled by that sense of tears. I watched, as many of you might have done, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, and it just had these, all these different incredible aspects to it, but I was intrigued by watching the new king looking at the coffin of his mother and asking, what is he feeling here? A single tear rolled down his cheek. Is he processing? One king becoming uh, the replacement, the one monarch's death, and new monarch becoming monarch? Is he processing the loss of a mother? Is he an old man processing mortality and the shortness of life? But this was a process where a whole nation came together, perhaps even a whole world came together and mourned in some way. And I found this fascinating article that unpacked the change at the end of the funeral. It said the funeral finished, and the stores began to reopen. Life was returning to normality, but not entirely as before. People had paused and thought about what was gone. As I processed my own grief around that event, it surprised me, and I realized suddenly that there'd been three constants in my life. God, my parents, and the queen was the queen. And so for me, there was a sense of loss, but a whole nation, a sense of loss, because who could remember a time when she wasn't there? Grief catches us off guard, it surprises us in so many different ways, and life may go back to some normality, but maybe never entirely as before. Grief is a process and we feel it. But perhaps best not in, Lamenta- in Jeremiah, but in the follow-up book in Lamentations. If you want to go home and read Lamentations, it will take you 10 minutes. It's five chapters and this will unlock it for you, hopefully in a profound way. Five chapters, the first two of them, Three of the first two of them are 22 verses each. It's an acrostic. Each of the 22 verses begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it has a rhythm, a feel to it. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet works its way through. Then you get to chapter three, and the pace picks up as the anger of the poet picks up, as he starts to express all of the emotions to God that he now has an opportunity to express. And now the 66 verses, and there's three for each of the Hebrew alphabet. So the rhythm moves from Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet to Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 Dalet, Dalet, Dalet. And then chapter four, it's back again to the old rhythm. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Feel how this works in English. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 64. Pay them back for what they deserve, Lord. Pay what, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Next verse. How the gold has lost its luster. The fine gold become dull. It's rage and anger. It builds. It's not sustainable. And suddenly it's... Now it's not the funeral, it's the day after the funeral when everybody else has gone home and you're just left to continue the process. That's what lament is. Lament changes. 
And I wanted to add this word. I wanted to add lament changes things. And sometimes that's true. Sung Chan Ra says lament leads to petition, which leads to praise. God's response to the petition and the Christian scriptures are full of these ideas that prayer is answered, lament is met with God's response, and that's true some of the time, perhaps lots of the time. And then maybe you've experienced times where it isn't. Maybe you've experienced times where the cancer doesn't go away, where the marriage isn't restored, where the business doesn't fail. Maybe you've lamented and prayed and said, God, it feels like you didn't answer. So maybe the word isn't things. Maybe the word is us. Lament changes us. Kathleen O'Connor, the continuation of the quote I started with, Jeremiah opens the sluice gates of grief and revives the people's radically disrupted relationship with God. Lament is a process that actually enables us to bring the grief and the heartache to the God of the universe and find that actually he meets us in the midst of that. John eleven thirty five. 35, simply Jesus wept at the grave of his friend alongside the man's sisters. The God of the universe stood and wept the same tears you and I weep. Somewhere the distinct aspect of the Christian faith is this, God's ability to grieve with us, to stand with us in the midst of our pain and suffering, not to diminish it, not to say it will all go away yet, but just to stand, to be with us, to join us in it. Isaiah 53, verse four and five, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The Jesus that buried a father, that was crucified as his mother watched, entered into our pain and suffering. That is the Easter message. That is the Good Friday story that leads to resurrection. The invitation is to bring lament into the light of God's day. Mark Rogop says this, prayerful lament is better than silence. However, I found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, or too risky. But there's something far worse, silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. This silence is a soul killer. Somewhere you and I might share the same tendency. My tendency is in the midst of grief, in the midst of a need to lament, to bury it, to hide the wound with a particular type of bandage, to cover it up in the hope that one day it will just heal itself or perhaps I'll find a way to heal it myself. I don't bring it where it needs to go. I keep it hidden, I hide it under the bandages of these things, maybe instant gratification. What's easiest? A numbing of my pain through mindless activities, avoiding difficult conversations. I like to retreat, I like silence then. I don't want to bring the lament, and yet that maybe is where it needs to go. One story to finish with that I think encapsulates this perfectly 
couple of years ago, my wife took my kids to see some friends, and during the course of the day, my oldest daughter came down and said, Gigi's gone missing. She's in the bathroom. She won't come out. She's been in there for an hour, but you need to come and talk to her. And so my wife went upstairs, and she found Gigi in the bathroom in tears. She'd been playing in one of the bedrooms of one of the kids, and they had some cacti in there. And just out of her curiosity, she'd gone and she placed her hands on top of the cactus and she got prickles all over the insides of her hand. But she was deathly afraid that she would get into trouble for touching something that she shouldn't have touched. And so she took herself off to the bathroom and she shut the door and she spent the next hour trying to wash away the prickles in her skin, trying to cure the wound herself. And in the end, my wife came alongside her and said, Gigi, you're not in trouble just want to help you take them out. I just want to bring healing to the wound. So often I do exactly what she did. I run away from God in my grief, in my struggling, in my own sense of failure, instead of running to him. Jeremiah seems to suggest this core idea. Lament is where healing begins. Lament is where healing begins. And so we're going to create some space before we close for lament. Every week during Lent, I've given you this gospel concept. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, 5, verse 14. So the questions I would ask are these. What would you lament? What is buried deep inside you? What have you held back? In what ways have you hidden in bathrooms? In what ways have you refused to talk about the thing at the core? In what ways have you denied the wound, denied the hurt? Aaron's going to lead us in a song, or sing us a song. It's a process song. And your chair, there's a white piece of paper. And as many people did in the first service, just going to invite you to find the thing. What is wounded? Is it a protest? Is there something that you see about the world, about your own situation to which you say, no, this isn't how it was supposed to be. The marriage wasn't supposed to end up like this. The child wasn't supposed to get sick. It wasn't supposed to be this way at all. Is it disorientation? Where even am I? Everyone's walking around like things are fine and they're not fine. Is it just simply the cry of the soul in anguish? Why? Why this story? As we process, you might be surprised what comes to mind. My intellect had me about to write down a couple of things. And as I sat there for just a second, suddenly became apparent, no, this is the thing. This is the thing at the core. This is the thing you run from. This is the thing that you don't want to share. This is the thing that you don't even trust me with. This is the heartache. What is it for you? How would you lament? What is the wound that needs healing? Where can the God of the universe come alongside you 
and say, my son, my daughter, I weep with you. One day, all things will be restored. But right now, let us weep together. Jesus, would you speak? Open our hearts. Bring transformation. This is your time. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.